Welcome to another episode here at the Midnight Founders Podcast. We're so excited to be with you today. This is AJ Rounds from Rev Road and Jake McCarr from CB Golf. Here at the Midnight Founders Podcast, we focus on telling behind-the-scenes stories for what makes a successful entrepreneur. We're excited for another week. Here we go. Today, we have um, a super exciting guest, Amy Reese Anderson. And we've been working on getting you on the podcast for a couple months, and it just <laughs> hasn't worked out, right? So welcome to the Midnight Founders Podcast today, Amy. It's Thank good to have you, you here. I'm happy to be here. This is so cool. Well, and I don't think there's anyone in this audience for sure that hasn't heard the name Amy Reese Anderson. So uh, we have a living legend here in front of us uh, and a local celebrity, and uh, we're excited to hear some of your story. This is going to be fun. So, um, you know, let's, let's do a quick, we do a quick 30 second, maybe just bio and, um, kind of a elevator pitch of the thing you're working on right now. Let's go through it and talk about that for just a 30 second. seconds. Okay. Yeah. So I started my first company when I was 23 years old in healthcare technology, cause that's a field I understood and ended up growing and selling businesses in that field and sold my last one in 2012. It was MediConnect Global. And at that point, I decided to start angel investing and also do some philanthropy to give back to encourage entrepreneurship because it's what allowed me to be self-reliant and support. I was a single mom for a lot of years, and it helped me support my family. And so I'm a big fan of entrepreneurs and trying to help them and see if they can maybe not repeat some of the same mistakes I made along the way and be a little smarter than I was by just sharing the experiences I went through. So, I love it. So, um, and I know that you support like UVU quite a bit, Utah State quite a bit. You're on many boards. Um, you've written a book as well. So, so many cool things. Um, so let's talk about, I mean, we love that you started a business at 23, single mother, yeah. right? How did you know to get into that? And where did the, you know, I mean, uh, med tech, that's kind of a hard space to get into. So how did that all start? You know, I didn't intend to go into that field. What had happened is I had grown up and in high school, I actually got jobs in medical offices doing every job from the, you know, I know you were in accounting. It's like the, the books back then were done on control of facts spreadsheets with like carbon copy paper. And I would learn to do the books on these little paper. I mean, that's how old I am. So I would, I learned accounting that way by doing it manually. I learned chairside assistant, learned all these different things for medical and by the time I came out to go to BYU and I had to put myself through college, I got jobs in medical fields. So I really understood the field by having done every job there was. But the technology side, I only knew it as a user. I didn't think of myself as a tech person. I mean, I was just running offices. I was running big medical clinics. And it, it one day someone came in to sell a software. And I remember thinking, I could I could do this. Like what this person is showing, like I know how to use it. And I knew what the system should look like. And so I ended up looking around to see if I should resell software that someone was making and kind of go out on my own. I had two little kids. I was the support of my family at the time, and I wanted to be with them. And I thought maybe I could do that from home. So for me, that was kind of the motivator. That It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to be an entrepreneur and be super, you know, like make all this money or any of that. It really wasn't. Working was remote more, before remote was a thing, right? Yeah, yeah. And it was just I just wanted to be there for my kids. And um, I had to drop out of college because I didn't have the money to go. At the time, I'd gotten married, and only one of us could afford to go. So I didn't really have this background thinking of, business training or any of those things. And so it really was more, it just kind of stepped me into it because I had this opportunity that I thought I'm going to do that. So I became a reseller of someone else's software and started to learn, well, why doesn't it do this? And why doesn't this button, you know, how can it do this? And so I started kind of developing my own without realizing that's what I was doing. I would draw on 
basically graph paper what I thought the software should look like. And in the best case scenario, if this button did this, and I was like, there's new tech that came out. Windows was a new thing back then. That's, you know, <laughs> I know that dates me a bit here, but but it really was. Everything was DOS and Unix-based systems. And when Windows was coming out, I was like, well, it'd be so much cooler. We would have to get up and like, make a photocopy of an insurance card. We could scan it with a scanner, right? And then just have that in the software because you have an images now. And so it was little things like that. And the fact that I had ADD, right? So I was bored quick and I was like, there's got to be a better way. <laughs> Everything was like, give me an easier, simpler way. And so I didn't realize by designing that stuff that I was actually creating what would end up becoming a software system that was one of the first to the web for doctor's offices. And it was by stepping into it, every opportunity I had and going through a couple of failures where I was selling somebody else's system. And then I was like, why am I selling their system? Maybe if I could develop it, so I had negotiated a deal to develop this other company's system, and we had a whole deal that was worked out, and I was so excited because I'm like, they're going to give us a couple million bucks. I'm going to hire developers, and I'm going to get to design it. They're going to own it, but I'm going to get to design the software. And was so excited about that. And the day before, I was supposed to fly out to sign contracts with them. They had just gone through a merger where one of the companies had falsified their financial information. Mm. And so the FBI came in and raided their offices. I mean, you want to talk about, <laughs> you know, you guys, you guys had mentioned that you guys talked a little bit about those like midnight moments of, oh my gosh, like here I was running a company that we were selling someone software. We were super successful at doing it. We were profitable. I'd bootstrapped it from, you know, I'd, I'd make a sale, then I'd hire the next person and make a sale and hire the next person. And so I'd been kind of going about it that way. And here we had this opportunity to, take on development. It wasn't even in my head to develop my own. I was going to develop for this other company. And I think that was part of just not thinking big enough at the time. Mm -hmm. And then this deal blows up and I've got all these employees. I've hired developers. I'm all ready to gear up and take this 2 million bucks a year to design software for them. And now, you know, my dad happened to be in the FBI growing up. So I called dad. I'm like, dad, what's going to happen? Like, he's like, yeah, they're not going to be able to do any deals for a while. Like the FBI's raided their offices. It's, it's, you know, so I sat down with all my employees. I'm like, I don't know what we're going to do because up until then, we'd been running profitably. And all of a sudden, I had taken on this big project with no funding for it if these guys weren't going to go through with their contract. And we were sitting around the room and one of these moments of, oh, my gosh, like there's no solution for this. What did I just do? How big was your team at that and point? And we had probably about, well, I had my own team, which was about, I think, Gosh, it's so many years ago, 35 maybe. And we had hired all these new developers. And mm -hmm. so it was, you know, and we, like I said, we've been profitable. So we'd been doing it ourselves. And I was like, I don't know how we're going to make payroll. I just hired all these people. I can't just fire them. Mm -hmm. Right. And we sat around them and everybody looked at each other and they were like, I was like, what are we going to do? And one of the guys goes, well, there's always failure. <laughs> and we all looked at each other and started laughing. And we're like, I mean, we were young, right? Like we had built this to where it was and no one thought we could do that. We didn't think we could do that. And it's kind of like, yeah, so, okay, let's say we do this. What if we go out on our own and do this and fail? Yeah, okay, we'll get new jobs. Like, if we have to go yeah. flip a burger, fine. We'll go make an honest day's work. You know what I mean? It was kind of this moment of, okay, you're right. There's always failure, so let's, yeah, why, why, why not go for it, mm -hmm. right? And so we did. We ended up going out, and, I mean, I was so junior at this point as far as business goes, right? I mean, I, you'll laugh on the financial side. I didn't know what EBITDA meant, <laughs> right? Like I knew how to plug numbers into QuickBooks, but when my, I had raised my first money from my dad and my my brother and an uncle, and I had said, you know, my dad's looking at the financials. He's like, oh, you, you're running a company at like 36% EBITDA. That's amazing. And I'm like, awesome. Great. I don't even know what EBITDA what is. is that? You go and write it down. I was too embarrassed to tell him because I'm like, I mean, I'm going to look like an idiot. You know? <laughs> yeah, but we I, worked really hard on that. I didn't know. <laughs> and so, but it, but it was like, I just knew that if there was cash in the 
account, right? So like, I didn't know how to go raise money. I had no idea. So I went home literally that night and I like got on Google and I was like, look, if anyone owes me a PhD, it's Google. Like mm-hmm. I'm saying I want an honorary PhD because <laughs> I literally, that was Google. my university. But I went on a Google, like, how do you raise money? Like I didn't know I'd never had to raise money before than that initial startup of like $23,000 to get going in the first place. I'd never raised a dime. And it was like, well, you got to have a business plan. I'm like, I don't know how to write a business plan. So I Google, how do you write a business plan? And it came back and there was a software called, I still remember it was called Business Plan Pro by Palo Alto Software that was like 80 bucks, which, you know, any money back then was a lot of money. And I was like, so I downloaded their software and it would ask me, and this was like overnight that I did this. Mm-hmm. It asked a question and I would answer, not knowing what it was going to, and then it would format it into a business plan. I still have a copy of that. That's so cool. <laughs> it was cool. the worst. Like now as an investor looking at business plans, I laugh because I'm like, it was like so junior. But I, you know what? I just answered the questions. It gave it to me. And then I'm like, well, now what do I do with it? And it's like, you got to send it to venture capitalists. I didn't know what that was. Yeah. So I Googled venture capitalists. And I that literally- was before Shark Tank. I mailed <laughs> yeah. it out. Yeah. No, I love that show, by the way. Huge, huge, huge fan of that show. Just because of what it's done to help entrepreneurs right. and to educate it really has they should the use the country. show in colleges i think like clips to teach entrepreneurship but anyway Agreed. sorry i digressed <laughs> but it was like i googled and it said you know so i just sent it to people like when you don't know what you don't know you're willing to do some stuff that other people will be like whoa that was pretty courageous yeah you know, for, well and even and even not to not to interrupt your story but even for you to know like how to hire developers and where to find them because that's a hard hire to start with oh right? super intimidating because i knew t- how to use tech yeah. Right? And I knew in my brain what it should look like. And I was drawing all those screens and everything right and writing up the information. Didn't know that was a spec for software. And so when I hired somebody, like I started hiring the team, I literally said, I need you guys to teach me how to write code. Not because I want to be a software coder, but I want to learn, frankly, to know how, what you're doing. how do I know who to hire if I don't even know what you do? And I made them teach me how to do the database and the arch- And by learning that, by spending months doing that, it helped me so much in my career to be able to know what was capable, how much it was going to cost, what was, if someone says it's going to take six months, I'd be like, actually, that should only take this long. And so learning enough to really hire the right people and be able to manage those people is critical. I think you got to get hands on with that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think it's really important. Also, like just being able to provide them the resources that they yeah. need, because if you don't understand what they do on a daily basis, you can't like appreciate they, it. Right? right. And when they come ask you for something, you have no idea. Yeah. You have no idea how to help them or, or what resources they actually need to do their job effectively. And so just being able to scratch the surface on that makes a huge difference. Well, and one of the things I wasn't afraid to do, because I already I already considered myself like junior to most people, right? Because I dropped out of college and I was like just a home-based business that I started that took off and all these things. So I didn't come into it with this um, embarrassment to say, I don't understand. So like I would sit down with the programmers. I'd be like, no, you got to dumb it down for me. Like you have to <laughs> say it in terms I can understand, because they talk really big, you know, XML this. And I was like, I don't know what that means. And so I make them relate things to something I understood. And being in a position to do that and be able to say, dumb it down, like I was kind of saying to someone, I respect your intelligence. I'm asking you to simplify it for me. And I could learn how to write code and database in like this tiny little bit of time, whereas it took them years and years, right? Because I was willing to like ask them to simplify it for me. And that was one of the tricks. Smart. Humility is one of the five Smart. H's at Rev Road, one right? One of the five H's, yeah. Yeah. Uh, one it. of the things that I think is really interesting about your story that we've heard before on the podcast is that I think innovation is driven very frequently um, from this desire that they don't want to do something monotonous. So like yeah. you saw these things that you hated doing and you're like, oh, 
we can change this. There's well, got to be a better way. And I think it's part of why I'm really open. Like I have ADD, right? I didn't know I had ADD until I was like in my 20s running a company. And then one of my mentors actually said, hey, does anyone ever told you you might have ADD? And have I you been like, diagnosed? No. So I went and got on meds for it, right? And it changed my life. And I'm and a lot of people don't like talking about that stuff. But I think the reason I do is I don't think having ADD was a weakness. Like it's actually what made me bored to the point that I was like, there has to be an, I don't want to make photocopies of an insurance card when I could use a scanner, this new technology that's out. Why aren't we using scanners, right? Like that boredom drove me. And then having the humility to say, if I can get help to manage it better by having, you know, if I need to take medication for it and not being too embarrassed or ashamed of needing to get that help, then if it's going to make me a better person, that takes courage. So I'm really open to talk to people about don't be, don't look at your things you were born with, right? Like as a weakness, like there's a strength to be found in the weakness that will actually also benefit your life tremendously. And there's a strength in getting the help to overcome a weakness and then being willing to share that with others, I think. That's awesome. It's interesting because um, I do listen to a few podcasts and anything that I read from other founders, the the common thread oftentimes is ADHD. Yeah. Like it's it's... It's what fuels founders, I think, because how do you get so much done in such a short time frame, you know, without having that? Well, and I will admit that after I got on the meds, like it, I was so afraid at first when I was, you know, I was in my 20s and I'm like, I'm afraid it's going to take away my intelligence. I, I really wondered if it would take away the gifts that I felt like I had when it came to learning quickly. And it didn't at all. It actually let me just hone it in better and be more focused. But I didn't lose that same thing. So, oh. but I, but I agree. And most of the entrepreneurs are ADD. It's, I mean, that's, that's kind of a common trait. That's great. Superpower, yeah. what I think. <laughs> so you built this business plan, going back to your story, and you're like, what do I do with this now? I got to go to the venture capitalist. What is that? You know, so, tell, so take I, us from I, there. I share that part of the story because I think it's important for people to know that you don't have to have it all figured out. Like I was kind of building the plane as I was flying it a little bit there at that point, which is, there's a risk to it, but I don't think good entrepreneurs or people that make good entrepreneurs, they don't look at themselves as a risk because they're willing to work so hard to accomplish it, but they're also risk adverse in many ways. Like I feel like I was risk adverse, but I just didn't see my work ethic as a risk. I knew I could work hard for myself or for somebody else. And so that's why I share that part of the story is like, I had to Google this stuff. I'm not embarrassed about it because I, I that's the truth. I genuinely had no idea. And we ended up meeting with investors and, and you know, they're asking me, when do you have to have payroll? And I'm like, well, it's in two weeks. So <laughs> if we could just hurry this along, <laughs> but I learned so many lessons going through that process. And we did end up raising money and developing that software. And, and we ended up developing it for the web instead of just windows, which no one was really doing at the time. It was all being done. You know, windows was the kind of the new thing. And the internet was mostly like an encyclopedia for people to look stuff up. It wasn't at the, at the beginning. And I still remember having to get on the modems and the little music it played. I mean, like it's, you know, things are so, our kids are, ne my kids are never going to know what that was like. Yeah. <laughs> but I, you know, like the internet for me, it was more like here I had all these clients that I was selling this client server based software to, and I'd have to go to these doctor's offices with disks and update the disks. And as I was selling software, not just in Utah to physicians, we were selling it outside of Utah. It was really time consuming to go out. So when I started to hear about the internet and these, you know, multi-tier applications that could potentially be done over the web, I was like reading everything. I mean, I would read massive stacks of stuff. That was one of my abilities was to read quickly. And I would read about these companies that were developing that could potentially be hosted centrally and then deployed. And I was like, for me, it wasn't like the cool factor of the web. It was the fact that I could actually update the software on an ongoing basis and not have to go deploy people to put disks in machines 
to update it. So it's funny how my motivations were different, right? Yeah. Finding that easier way to do it. That's what. But it did end up being one of the, the, I think it was the first healthcare one that did it that way. And that like, that kind of built my confidence to go and do the next software and the next software. And we ended up with MediConnect Global. That was actually a company that had existed. There was a MediConnect.net that had existed. That was a company that someone had me take a look at to see if they should invest. And I looked at it and I was like, oh, their tech's really cool, but they don't know how to sell the product, right? They're, they're, not, not focused on sales and ended up being asked by the, the investors if I would step in and take that one over and run it. But I was like, well, there's a CEO there. I'm not going to, you know, push some CEO. I don't want to be part of that. And at the same time, I already have a company I'm running in other services. We were doing tech services and healthcare in India. And I said, you know, I've already got this. And they said, no, 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 just step in and help us turn it around. So I stepped in and helped them turn it around short term while I was doing my other company. And I, after we had an offer to sell it and I said, okay, go ahead and sell. And they're like, why don't you buy it? Like, why don't you buy it? And then let us keep a little bit of equity in what you're doing. And I ended up forming MediConnect Global, bought that, rolled my other company into it and went and did a couple more acquisitions. And we rolled that up and grew it and ended up selling that in 2012 for just over $377 million. So to start from that- It's amazing. (laughs) To start from the girl that didn't know what EBITDA was to that, you do learn a lot of lessons that you want to give back with and share because you want to help other people do it a little quicker, easier, less painful. So you're you're doing that now in a couple different formats. You have Reese Capital, yes, um, where you're deploying capital to early stage entrepreneurs and mainly at the seed stage. We started out at the seed stage right after I sold the company, and the hardest part was time. Because, you know, I was so excited to help the, the entrepreneurs as they were getting started and your time to mentor, it, the more investments you make, the more limited it is. So we, we definitely had to move up the food chain a little bit when it came to where we invest and do a lot more deploying through funds as well, just so that you can scale as big as you need to. So Reese right. Capital is kind of our family office to do that, to make those investments. And, and then you have on the side, which is awesome. I love that you have, there's so many entrepreneurs. I love that they just jump right back in and they're like, Hey, I want to give back to the people that have the good ideas. I, you know, I think it's partly because you look back with so much love for that stage of your company. Um, and so you want to be involved in that stage again. Um, but I, you also have, uh, the nonprofit side. And so what are you doing with that? So my husband and I started the IPOP foundation that was just really with our kids. And it was a way to really encourage people to look at entrepreneurship as a pathway to self-reliance. So we do a lot of serve. I serve on the university boards for like BYU, UU, like a whole bunch of them. Yeah. I serve on their boards and, and just try to help with like their business plan competitions and, and speaking and judging and mentoring and all that kind of stuff. And we really try to help encourage this ecosystem of entrepreneurship. That's why we love what Red Road's doing, right? Like it's really kind of helping create this community to support these young entrepreneurs to, to kind of come together and have that support team. Cause I didn't have, I had my executive team, right? That was my support system back in the day. But I, but I, as I started to get mentors and the value they had on your life and the impact is tremendous. So I'm just a big believer in that. And I'm a big believer in helping, you know, I was a single mom And so I needed a way to put food on the table. And I look at some of the young women today and I want them to also see examples of, of women who, you know, I still value motherhood about everything else. There's no award I've won that comes close to being a mom. That is the best payoff ever. And, and probably if I would have had the money back in the day to, to stay home with my kids, I probably would have, I would have loved it. Right. But, but I didn't. And a lot of women that maybe have that passion also won't have that opportunity. Some don't have the desire. That's fine too. They want to go right into business, but, but I had the desire, but I also realized that, you know, life throws stuff at you and you got to just kind of 
go with what you got and, and you can either cry about it or be sad about it, or you can like be like, okay, I'm just going to tackle this and take we'll it make on. Money. Yeah. <laughs> and if I'm going to make money, I make a lot of money. Why just make a little money? Why? You know, I remember back in college selling Mary Kay lipsticks to try to make a couple 10 bucks here, 10 bucks there. And I'm like, I just, when I sold my first software to someone, I was like, I just made 10,000 bucks in the same amount of time I spent selling a lipstick for 10 bucks, same amount of effort too. And it was a real aha moment for me that, you know, if you're going to do it, you might as well go big. <laughs> I don't know. But, I love that. Yeah. But it, it's, I just want to encourage young women too to consider business. And, you know, it's, I think the, the combination of men and women in business together is really powerful because we see things differently. Yeah. Right. There's different talents we bring to the table that I want to encourage. What was, as you're building um, MediConnect Global, what was some of your most um, gratifying moments? Like when you're like, oh man, I just really am proud of this moment. I think the most proud moments, it's going to sound weird, but like when we started the company, we said we're going to list our values, right? We're going to decide what we're going to stand for. And no matter what, that's what we'll say our success is. So it's not the money. If we can say we live by these values, then we're going to think we're successful, whether we fail or not, right? And and it kind of changed our dynamic. And, and it was the moments that we did the right thing, even when it was scary or hard. And there's a lot of those, right? So we had written on my board, do what's right. That was on my office wall, and we had our meetings in there in this conference table. And we added to it, let the consequence follow. And the reason we did that was because doing the right thing, especially in business, so often it could mean losing a deal, not getting a sale, um, having to be honest with a customer that you screwed up, and, oh, my gosh, we made a mistake, and they might pull the plug on you. You know what I mean? It's like there's these moments where you can kind of mess your head up by saying, well, we're going to do the wrong thing, but it's for the right reason. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah, we're not going to tell the client this happened, but it's because we'd have to lay people off or whatever it is, right? And you can almost convince yourself of things. And I think the proud moments where, where when we, we actually would help each other go, no, we're going to live by integrity. That's our number one value. And we're going to live by that. So even when it's scary, we're going to do what's right. And being willing to risk everything to do what was right. And then to see the payoff of that, right? And the, the, I believe the greatest asset any entrepreneur has is their integrity and their reputation of integrity of trying to do the right thing at all times. And we had so many times where things would fail in a client, like we'd screw something up and have to call the client and say, we just messed up. Here's where we screwed up. Here's what we're going to do to fix it. You know, and we're going to make sure we never make that mistake again. And, and so often, instead of being upset with us, the client would be like, thanks for your honesty, because most people would have lied to us or not told us or whatever. And the fact that we did that, they would then give us more business and more business. So we really saw the financial benefit as, a, as well as the human benefit of doing that. But I think it's, there's a little, you feel proud of yourself when you do the right thing in a scary circumstance. And it's not easy. It's terrifying. Yeah. I think it facilitates trust with like your, your clients, but I think also like it facilitates a lot of trust within your team. Yeah. Because they know that like, not only are you going to do that for your clients, you're going to do that for each other. And maybe even almost yourself too, because you can show yourself, hey, I can do this, yeah. even if it's hard, you know? Even when it's scary. And, and do it again, you know? And it really did with the team. And I think that's one of the things as a leader is being willing to put myself on the line and have them hold me accountable. So like right. if, I, if I said, we're going to live by this value and then I didn't uphold it, having a team that would say, hey, Amy, you said this is what we stand for. You got to like make sure that's what we continue to do. And right. then being willing to like, be like, oh, yeah, I screwed up on I'm sorry. Like, right, I'm sorry, I'm going to fix that. I think it's really important to set the example because it does start at the top. And if you say these are the values and you don't live them, nobody else is yeah. going to live them. Yeah, it's going to bleed down. So you, I'm, I'm 
really fascinated with this stage that you're at right now where you're uh, being able to kind of involve yourself in a lot of different companies. And I'm sure you're seeing tons and tons of examples or lessons that you're learning of things not to do, but also like things to do. So are there, are there like anything examples that stick out to you as something that you've learned over your career that you would share with an early stage entrepreneur? Yeah, I think don't, don't feel like you have to be a know-it-all. Nobody really wants to help a know-it-all succeed. That's the truth. Like we all have friends that are know-it-alls and do you ever want to give them good advice? No, because they already know it all. So you just don't say anything. And I think I see, we meet with a lot of entrepreneurs that come pitch their businesses to us, right? And when they come off like they know it all, I number one, you already know they don't because none of us do, not even those that have been through it and been there and bought the t-shirt, right? Like we don't know it all. And so when they come off like they do, what it tells you is they're not going to be teachable. And there is something very endearing about someone who says, you know, I'm confident in my idea, but I'm also aware that I don't know it all and I would love your help along the way, it makes you want to help them more as an investor, right? And as a mentor, as opposed to someone who knows it all. So I, when I, I'm talking with the young people, I'm like, you guys don't feel like you have to know it all to be a trustworthy person. I mean, I remember being young and kind of acting like I had to act all cocky and arrogant because no one will take me serious as a leader if I'm not going to be a know-it-all. And it literally was the worst idea I ever had when I was young. And it really took getting beaten down by life and failures and having to get back up again, where you're like, I actually don't know it all. And when I kind of embraced that and was willing to say to my employees, I don't know it all. I'm doing my best here. I could use your help. Watching the way they rallied behind me and helped me succeed was unreal. Like it was just such a testament to me of, oh my gosh, why didn't I do this when I was younger? <laughs> like, I just think there's, there's a real um, success that comes to you by being humble, being authentic with people. It's okay to say you don't know. Do follow up and figure it out and ask their opinion too, but be that person who's willing to learn from others. Be the one who's not too proud to say, can you just dumb it down for me, right? Vulnerable but accountable yeah. as well. Yeah, that I love really that speaks, combination. That speaks to my soul. I love that. I, I wish we could make sure all entrepreneurs hear that because that is a problem, especially when you see so many pitches. You're like, you know, if you would just meet us halfway and say, hey, here's our, here are things I don't know and don't have figured out yet. That just helps that investor want to invest that much more. I love that you said that. Well, and it was interesting because like in the company as we were growing MediConnect, right, we got to this place where we were, the revenues were climbing really good, but the expenses were also, you know, kind of, we were still making a good profit, but it was, they were climbing too. And, and I started to realize that when I wasn't communicating for myself, like other people would communicate as if they knew what I was thinking. And that became what people thought. Right. So like there would be issues and they'd be like, oh, Amy thinks this. I'm like, that's not what I think at all. But but I wasn't saying it for myself, but the company was growing. We had, you know, a couple thousand employees. We were in two countries, like three offices. What are you going to do? And it was like overwhelming to me to how do I let people know who I am, what I stand for. And I started doing like a daily blog to my employees that wasn't like some professional blog. It was like, I'm going to write a blog and just talk about what I'm learning, the vulnerability, the authenticity, the here's a mistake I made today, or here's something awesome that I saw today, or someone did this nice thing for someone else. Or, you know, I always joke about, I wrote one about don't put your pants on out of the dryer because it's a little humbling. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it was real. It was just genuine who I was, not like I'm your boss and here's the genius I have to share. It wasn't like that. And as I started to write the blog, and I was doing it five days a week because I had committed to that communication with the employees. It was just an internal blog. And watching the employees, and I made it where they could actually 
comment back, which was scary because wow. you're like, that's really putting yourself out there. And I'm like, what if they say they hate me? You know what, I mean? what if they do? And then I started to realize, isn't it better if I know they hate me? Like, and then I can address it and figure out why do they hate me? And like, what do we need to do? And so we started doing that and watching that go. And it was again, one of those really scary. Putting yourself bad, out there. Yeah, it's a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. And it was awesome because Number one, it let the executives all know, too, this is what people's frustrations or complaints are. And then we could actually address them. Because even though, like, people think, oh, if we don't hear any complaints, they're still there. And you need to hear about them. That's the only way you're going to fix it. So it's better to address it than to have people saying it behind your back. That's the truth, right? And so the more we did that and the more we were going through things and I was open about those struggles, the more they would rally and help me and come to my defense. And if someone said, well, we don't like that Amy doesn't do this, someone else would say, well, yeah, but did you notice she does this? And like seeing that happen, I was like, man, the more I was like doing that, watching the financial numbers of the company, the revenue continued to climb and the expenses started to flatten out. They mm. weren't climbing like they used to be. And we hadn't done anything different. I had just started to communicate and be real and open and tell them like when I was struggling with our health insurance costs rising and the year before everybody was so mad that their rates were going to go up, right? Their portion was going to go up. And I had negotiated that prior year too, but they didn't know that. So they were mad thinking, oh, she doesn't care about us, our health insurance rates. The next year I'm telling them we're doing these negotiations and the rates are going up and and I'm trying to fight on this and this issue. And what can we do as a group to fix it, right? And they're like, oh, we could start an exercise class or we could give up smoking or whatever it was, right? People were like coming up with these ideas. And then even though the rates might have gone up that year as well, their reaction was like, oh, thank you so much for everything you did for you us tried. instead of being frustrated. Yeah. And the only difference was that I shared. It was collaborative. Yeah. I was telling them what was going on. And I was making them part of that process and it gave them ownership in it. And it was, it was such a humbling thing as a leader because I realized that communication with your people and talking and being real and showing it's okay to be real. That was literally the tipping point for our success where our margins were huge. And I mean, we had such a successful exit because everybody felt invested and it was that authenticity. So like when I'm trying to tell people what are some of the secrets to doing it. It's that. And when I sold the company, I told the employees I was going to transition out and go do angel investing. They're like, are you going to write your blog? And I'm like, well, you don't have to read it anymore. I'm not going to be your boss, you know? And they're like, no, no, no. We love learning what you're learning. <laughs> and so that's when I started, I was like, oh, wow. Okay. I didn't realize it meant that much. Is that right? the blog you're still doing today? And so I continued to the yeah. blog. I set a goal for 10 years yes. and I did it for 10 years. And it was during that process that Forbes had seen a blogs and reached out and said, Hey, will you write for their Forbes.com? So I was doing articles for them and that's when I got approached by a publishing company that they'd bought that said, hey, will you write a book? And I was like, I don't want to write a book. I have ADD that takes it. I don't like reading a lot of books because if there's <laughs> sometimes I feel like there's a lot of extra <laughs> stuff in a book that you don't really need to read. You know what I mean? It's like, so just, this is the book for ADD. So it's, it's like, literally, that's what my, <laughs> so my son joked about it. He's like, mom, this is like, if I was to describe your book, it's the ADD guide to success. Cause it's like <laughs> every chapter is like three pages and it's on a topic. And so it's literally just going back and looking at the blogs that I had done. I'm pulling them into like a, a little bit of a book It's called what awesome looks like how to excel in business and life, but it is the most ADD success book, <laughs> but it's really not any of the fluff. It's just getting to the meat of the different experiences that, and the lessons I learned that I'm like, look, you don't need to read the whole thing to know this is what I learned from it. Is it an, is it on an audio book yet? Uh, no. And everybody's like, I, I need to, that's my next thing is I will record it. Cause I know no one reads books anymore. That's cool. It's only, like I said, every chapter is three pages. It's super simple. I Big print, you know, book. I'm going to go get it. I wish it. there was more pictures cause that's what I resonate <laughs> with. So, I'm going to go download it or yeah. go, go buy it. Yeah. You can get the ebook too. It's just on Amazon. That's so. awesome. You know, it's funny cause we, um, 
Nicole Tanner from Swig, the founder of Swig, was on here just not long ago, and they're exploding. I mean, they've got now franchises all over the country, right? Yeah, their their Beach Babe Diet Beach Babe is like the best. Yes, okay, huge fan right that here. That drink is awesome. Nicole, shout out to Nicole Tanner right here from <laughs> Amy Sanderson. Um, what um, she says the same thing, you know, be vulnerable, let your people like build that culture, let your people see who you are. But I've never heard it in this way where you actually like have a blog and write it out and let them be part of that journey with you. That's, I think that's brilliant. It was the only way I, I could come that. up with to communicate with all of them at once. Cause when you're little and starting out, you know, everybody and you know, everybody's name As you grow, you lose that connection and you don't know that you've lost it until you've lost it. And that was like the only way I could talk to people in all these countries that we had working for us and keep the messaging there. But it was also good. Cause you know what it, did for me personally was it helped me think about what was the positives that I can take from today. You know, you go through a lot and it's easy to get in your own head and get negative, especially as the entrepreneur at the top, because you are, there's a little bit of a loneliness that comes like you still have teams and all that, but you feel that weight of the world on my shoulders and it's all resting on me. And so it forced me instead of getting negative about the bad things that happened to sit down and be like, okay, but what did I learn from today that I could share with others that was the positive from this bad experience. And it really changed the way I think about things. So every day I just trained myself at the end of the day. And I wrote it five days a week for 10 years. Every day didn't miss 15, a day. 15, 20 minutes at the end of the day or something? And it was like, it would take, sometimes I would spend hours doing it. My, my husband hated the blog. Yeah. <laughs> my husband was like, put the laptop away in bed. Come on, like no blog. He was thrilled when I was done with my 10-year mark. But it was really for me, a really like it helped me probably more than others because it was forcing me to look at life as even the negatives that happen, that's what the positives are. You know, you go through, I know you mentioned you lost your dad. You know, I lost my dad mm -hmm. recently too, just yeah. a couple of months ago. And it was brutal to go so through sorry. that. But like, because I'd had this training of being forced to look at the positives, I finally got to the point, I'm like, you know, life's not supposed to be easy. Like we all wish for this easy, but when you look back at your successes and failures, it's not your successes. You became who you are. It was the failures and the things that knocked you down and punch in the gut and made you think you can't go forward, but getting up, going forward, and then realizing, oh, that's the journey. It's the learning of the hard things and overcoming those and having the resilience to go forward. And then you look back and go, the, the kind of the amazing gloriousness of that you're proud of. Yeah. So it really gave me an appreciation for looking at the negatives as not a negative, but a learning experience that was going to make me better tomorrow than I was today. I love, I love that perspective. But I also just want to take a second and commend you for like the dedication to getting that done. Like as a city manager, I tried to write a weekly email to like the staff or the city council, you know, and just let everybody know what was happening during the week. Yeah. And a weekly email was so hard to stay yeah. committed to. So the thought of doing a daily to everybody while you're running this company that's growing at the level that it was growing at. I just, props to you, that's amazing. And you kept it going for 10 years, that's incredible. I'm gonna go buy that book today <laughs> because I can't wait to see what's inside it. That is just, I'm my hat's off to you. That's incredible, so congratulations. Well, you know, one of the reasons I was so diehard about I can't, I can't miss a day, there was two reasons. One, I wanted them to trust me and I had said I would do it every day and if I didn't, then I was gonna break yeah. that trust. And two, and I'm sure you guys have all noticed this in your life, like, when you set a rule for yourself and you keep it, it's actually easier to keep it. But like when I would set rules, and, I, and that's one of the advice to young entrepreneurs starting out is like starting out, I was like, okay, I'm never going to work on Sunday. That's kind of a family religious day. And I never felt tempted to because it was, I, I'd never had, so I didn't feel that pressure. But the things I set, like, well, I'm going to be on time, have dinner with the kids every night, right? And then I'd be like, 
30 minutes late, an hour late. Once you've messed it up once, it's easy right. to mess it up a whole bunch and it's really hard to get back. So when I did the blog, I was like, I'm not going to miss a day because I, if I do, I'll never keep it up. It's like and a it, cheat day with And a it diet. was true. It was literally <laughs> true. Like I literally wouldn't miss a day. And, and it was, it was a huge commitment, but I think it was as much for my own commitment level to be like, if I keep this rule, I know I will do it. You That's know, amazing. it's especially impressive because you had it. ADD, you know what I mean? How, who sits down and writes a blog? Yeah, I didn't they say they were like professionally written blogs. Like, like <laughs> They've been edited now. If you go back and look, they are not like your professional blog. That's the thing is like, and it was also a good way to police my husband and kids. Like if he let my car run out of gas, I was writing a blog about don't let your wife's car run out of gas because what it really says is you don't love her. Okay, it's not about the gas. It's about the fact she could have been attacked on the side of the road and you didn't love her enough to make sure there was gas. I actually had written, that's a legit blog I wrote once. And we, I was speaking at a conference and one of the guys in the audience stood up and he's like, I brought this for you as a gas can he brought for my husband. <laughs> no way. <laughs> but it, but they, my kids and my husband knew if they did something dumb, it was going in the blog. So they were like, no, don't do anything. <laughs> Mom, Mom will write about it. You know, it's like, it's like guys that didn't date Taylor Swift because if you break up with her, she's going to write a song. They were like, we'll you. be in Mom's blog if we do something dumb. But, <laughs> Best but behavior. It, but it was, it was, it was like, it wasn't like some, perf- I didn't worry about the grammar. I just, you know, it was just, re- it was as real as talking. Yeah, it was literally whatever I was thinking about. And I, I'm sure there's, if I went back and looked at all the grammatical errors and things like that, I would like <laughs> be like, oh, but it was just, it was real. It was raw, very, very raw. But, you know, it resonated with people in a way that I think they found it refreshing because it wasn't some professionally written. You know, You're, when I was p- p- writing for Forbes on some of their stuff, I had to be a little professional on those days. <laughs> and it was actually harder to write. And I thought it was less engaging because it was like professional. You know what I mean? Yeah. Your layer of gloss on it, right? Yeah, yeah. So my question for you, Amy, I mean, you were able to do all this while being a mother and then eventually you, you got married again and your husband's awesome, by the way. And thank you. And um, did, did any did your kids gather any of these lessons? Did they also become entrepreneurs after seeing your example? Like, tell us about that. Yeah. So I have two kids. I have a son, Dalton, and a daughter, Ashley, and they're unbelievably awesome. And they grew up in the office. Like I literally, when I, when I started at the house and I thought, oh, I can do it from home. And then it just grew so fast. And then I had little Fisher Price desks for real in my (laughs) office and they would come in and my daughter was commanding employees when she was like, six months old with a bottle hanging down and her diaper sagging. And when they got in trouble, they'd have to go take time out in a Winnie the Pooh tent inside the office. So the, the employees there, like they grew up with your kids. Yeah. They all knew my kids to this day. And it's, it's awesome. Cause the first employee I ever hired, he's a total stud. He worked for me for all my companies I ever did. And now he's got his own companies, Eric quickly. He's the best guy ever. Like I love that guy. And he's running a new successful company on his own. And I'm so proud of him. But like these guys grew up with my children and now my children have children of their own and so my my son and daughter it's funny because you know when they're kind of teenagers they're like we don't want to follow in mom's foot you know what I mean they you know they try to distance like I'm not you know that's my mom and they, but it's funny because my daughter ended up going they both went to BYU and graduated from BYU so I'm really proud of them for sticking with that because that was something I didn't get the opportunity to do because of money um but they both went there and she graduated in entrepreneurship at BYU and cool. started her own company that she's taking a little bit of a break right now because she just had a second baby. She's having her second oh, baby. Congrats. And I, I told her, I'm like, you know, enjoy that moment because you don't get those back. So take advantage of that. But she is definitely an entrepreneur. And my son helped actually edit the book when I was doing the book. He's the one that called it the ADD Guide to Success, which he's like, thinks I should put in the explanation of the book. He's like, just don't even write a synopsis. Just say that. That's all people need to know. (laughs) But he's amazing. And he's actually um, doing going to work for one of the entrepreneurial companies. And it's it's really cool to watch his success because he's like started in PR comms and is kind of 
branched out now where he's becoming more and more of like wanting to work in that entrepreneurial environment. So as much as they didn't want... They distanced themselves. Yeah. They just drew him right back in. But it's funny because <laughs> even last night, my son called and he's like, hey, mom, I never asked you about this particular failure you went through with one of your first companies and we're talking about it. And he's like, I'm like, well, he's like, why didn't you tell us these stories? I'm like, well, you guys didn't ask. You know what I mean? So it's like when they're your own kids. And you're just cranking away, right? Yeah, you're cranking away. So it is, it is good, I think, as your kids are growing to stop and check yourself and go, have I shared stories now with them that they won't remember from when they were little kids? Because, you know, you just take for granted they were there as little kids and that they remember. And it was cool to watch him get excited and want to know more. And my daughter's constantly asking me same. So it's, so it's kind of fun now that they're adults and making their own way. Yeah. And they've got kids of their own and they're trying to teach those kids. So it's a good, that's another good piece of advice. Make sure your kids bring them along the journey and share those stories so that they learn them. And yeah. And even if they weren't interested a year ago, don't think they might not be interested today because their own lives are progressing yeah. such that now those things matter to them. Right. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, I think, I mean, this whole, you know, interview so far has just been filled with little nuggets. I know. Of yeah. It's been awesome. Right, 80 nuggets. <laughs> I love it. I love yeah. it. I just, yeah, it's incredible. I, I would guess, I, I would ask one last question, Amy, and I'm sure you get asked this all the time. Um, but, uh, you know, all, there's so many entrepreneurs out there just working and, you know, panicking and just those gut-wrenching moments and, you know, putting off time. I mean, I remember we had Clint Berry on the, the podcast with, you know, one of the co-founders of Weave, and he said there was four years that he didn't take a vacation at all. Yeah. And it really, his family really suffered from it, right? So then you get this term sheet on your desk and you sell your company. How, what was that moment like? And how did that feel after all this work and all these years and all these midnights, for example, and then there's the term sheet and you're going to sell out and, and the money comes in. Then, then how does that feel? What it's that a like? great question. Cause it doesn't get asked that often to be honest. Really? Yeah. It's hmm. not a question we ask a lot. Um, cause everyone just assumes it's like, here's the thing. You're so excited and grateful that you finally kind of achieved this success but there's a real emotional shift that happens when you sell a company because it's kind of your baby, right? Like it's been your baby and it's been part of your identity. Like you're the CEO of this company and then all of a sudden you sell it and you're like, and, and you make all this money, right? And then now you find out having money is actually a job too, like investing it, knowing how to be wise with it, how to be a good steward and give it away the right way. And you go through all the same lessons the hard way as someone who now just has money to go and do those things as you did as a young entrepreneur with no money trying to figure it out. So that that's kind of a humbling thing to know that there's a lot of work to it after the exits as well. And there's also this kind of recognizing that your business wasn't your identity, even though it felt like it, right? People's, they identify with their companies. The company is not what makes you, you, you are what makes you, you. And that company is just one of the things that was part of your journey. But there's the next thing and the next thing. And that's, that's one of the things where, but there's this moment and I have a good friend, he sold his business and we were talking about this very issue. And he was like, was it kind of emotionally like this hard moment? He's like, no one ever talks about the hard part of it. And I'm like, yeah, that's, it, there is hard things. There's blessings and you feel so blessed for what you've been able to do. And then there's that kind of re-identifying like, okay, wait, I am still me and I'm still this person and it's not my company. You go through that. And there is a shift there to be had that is an emotional thing, but I will say that, look, anyone that's got, I call it the entrepreneur's disease, anyone's got entrepreneur's disease, you sell it and you think, I'm going to go to Disneyland, whatever, <laughs> right? Like the next day, 6 a.m., you're like, okay, I got to have the next plan. I got to have, yeah. so <laughs> everyone's like, oh, did you slow down? And I'm like, I, I wish I could say yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's hard because it's kind of ingrained in your nature. You've, that work ethic, you've, 
you've been working so hard for so long. That's all you know how to do. But I have, I think as I've gotten a little older now, right? And I'm, I, I immediately jumped right back in and I was like, you take a few breaks, you go build a houseboat and have fun at Lake Powell. You do stuff like that, <laughs> right? But but the older I've gotten now, I, I'm really valuing the time. I, you know, I have five grandkids, my six on the way. The Congrats. fifth was just barely born. Thank you. Wow. Being a grandma is the coolest thing ever, we ever. You love your kids and then you have grandkids and you're like, whoa, didn't know you could love people <laughs> even more. And so having the grandkids and being present where I can actually be present with them you know, you look back and there is times you'll regret for sure the, the time away from the family because part of the biggest struggle is as an entrepreneur, you kind of make everything an emergency. And if I could go back and say, you know, what I would do so different is I would realize that part of when, you know, I'm a faith-based person, I think people have faith in something, not everyone, you know, I believe in God, some people believe in the universe, whatever, but I think there's faith that drives all of us. And I look back and I think, you know, I've learned that what faith was, was realizing that I didn't have to stay up till 4 a.m. every night. That faith is saying I'm doing my best and things will turn out okay if I'm just go forward and not make it all. So I would have taken a lot of things more in stride, if that makes sense, where I would have been like, you know, work hard, but don't kill yourself because there's so many things that I look back and I'm like, I actually didn't need to stress that hard. It's kind of like an example is like being a grandparent, like my daughter on the way here, she calls and she's like, Hazel, my granddaughter, she's like, Hazel took off her diaper and drew with, poo all over the wall. Sorry, that's graphic, but that's literally, we just had that conversation on my way to this podcast. And I started laughing and I said, oh, that's so cute that she's artistic. And my daughter's like, oh, very funny mom, right? And I'm like, no, but that's the difference between being a parent and a grandparent. And that's the difference between an entrepreneur who's just learning it the first time as someone who's been there and done it is it really was like, as a parent, I would have been panicking and oh my gosh, and mad. And as a grandparent, you're like, oh, that's so cute. Because you've learned that it's not that big a deal. This too shall pass. It's not that big a deal, right? And and so when you're young as an entrepreneur and everything feels like the end of the world and such a big deal, use the grandma example I just gave you, because I promise you, you're going to look back and it wasn't as big a deal as what it felt in that moment. Mic right? drop. Laugh, love that. Laugh at the poo on the wall. I yes. Yeah. You know, it's just the artistic poo moment. Have fun with it because it's not the end of the world. It feels like it is, but it's genuinely not. They're and it's and, and learn to laugh about it because laughter is the best antidote for sadness, depression, this whole suicide thing. It's like learn to find the humor and learn to find the lesson in what you've gone through. And you know, it's just everyone's like, "How did you get through losing your dad?" Because he was my bestie. And, and I was by his side every day for 120 days before he passed, taking care of him. And it's like, you know what? Like I can, it's like Dr. Seuss said, I can cry because it's over. I can smile because it happened kind of a thing, right? I don't know the exact, I probably messed that quote up, but you know what I'm saying? Like I look at the blessings in it and try to focus on that and, and realize life is beautiful. Even when it's hard and messy and dirty and even when you fail and you have to get up and try it again, it's an incredible experience. It's turning you into this person you never thought you could be. And that's why you keep going and you don't give up. And you remember this quote on my wall that says, it'll all be okay in the end. And if it's not okay, it's not the end. And focus <laughs> oh. on that, right? And just enjoy the journey. I don't uh, I don't think we need to add anything to that. I think we can <laughs> thank just... Thank you. Yeah. I just want to say incredible. thank you. Uh, yeah. What a great awesome. time we've spent. And we appreciate your insights and just your goodness as a person. And, uh, you know, everyone speaks so highly of you and, and loves you and I can see exactly why. So. Well, you guys are doing awesome work here and I love that you're encouraging young entrepreneurs and doing what you're doing with this podcast. I think it's great. And with Red Road and with the bank and everything else. So thank you for being here. Thanks, Amy. Take care. We'll talk soon. See ya. 
The Midnight Founders Podcast is a podcast about entrepreneurship that is hosted by CB Vault and Rev Road. CB Vault is the entrepreneur arm of Central Bank. And Rev Road is a venture services firm where companies come to grow. Thanks for listening to us. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcasts. This is AJ and Jake signing out.